Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and our packed show today includes this week's healthy headline about laughter therapy, along with today's guest, Brad Stone, who has written the most current up-to-date tell-all book about Jeff Bezos and the ubiquitous Amazon. Shopping on Amazon.com has become part of our lives, and the Amazon delivery trucks can be seen everywhere in nearly every country and every neighborhood and block here in the United States. Half of the U.S. households are Amazon Prime members, and Amazon's annual 2020 revenue was $386 billion. Brad Stone, author of the new book, Amazon Unbound, our guest today, tells us all about Amazon, the inside-the-store look at the largest online retailer in the world. Brad Stone tells us how he managed to get inside the Jeff Bezos bubble, despite the fact that Amazon is a secretive company and Bezos is a secretive person. Brad Stone also says Bezos won the pandemic by providing products from A to Z, Amazon's logo, and delivery during the lockdown directly to our homes. A real coup, benefit, and relief for all of us needing supplies but unwilling and even prohibited in some cases from shopping without our masks. Bradstone's new book, Amazon Unbound, is an unvarnished picture of Amazon's unprecedented growth and its billionaire founder, Jeff Bezos, revealing the most important business story of our time. And Bradstone even reads a passage from his new book, Amazon Unbound, telling us the story of how Jeff Bezos fell in love with the single cow burger. An amazing story. Innovation takes a lot of different forms at Amazon. Often it's, it's in the form of a, a new product. Um, and, uh, and, but sometimes they're not even technical in nature. Sometimes Bezos has an idea for something that can help distinguish another Amazon service. In this case, it's grocery service. So I present to you, Paul, the story of the single cow burger. And this is from the chapter in my book about Amazon's grocery business. In 2015, the Washington Post published an unappetizing article about how a single hamburger might contain the meat of up to 100 cows. Sourcing a burger from just a single cow could produce a superior tasting patty, but that would, quote, be hard and expensive, a meat distributor told the paper. That caught Bezos' attention. In another brainstorming meeting with senior vice president Doug Harrington, he suggested they find a ranch to produce a single cow burger. I really think you should try this, Bezos told Harrington, who recalled thinking at first it was a joke. Quote, how hard can it be? And Paul, you never want to hear those words from Jeff Bezos <laughs> if you are an Amazon employee. The project was assigned to a new culinary innovation team inside Amazon Fresh and immediately established as an S-team goal. A product manager named Megan Rossiter was then charged with finding a way to actually produce it. The meat vendors she initially contacted told her that such a thing was totally impractical and would, in fact, be disruptive to their operations. Quote, I felt like I was always getting crazy, daunting goals that seemed almost impossible, she said. Somehow, Rossiter and her colleagues found a ranch in San Diego County near the Mexican border that could produce a burger. They worked with the ranch that spring, devising ways to freeze the meat for transport and designing packaging that wouldn't leak when it was defrosted. In June 2016, Amazon splashed single cow burger promotions on the Fresh website, advertising half-pound Wagyu beef burgers with 80% lean meat and 20% fat. The company also prepped Alexa with an answer should anyone ever ask it for a definition. Quote, single cow burger, 
a beef burger made with meat from just a single cow. The initial feedback from customers was promising. But a few months later, Bezos sent an email to fresh executives. He felt the packaging was too difficult to open and complained that the burger was so fatty that dripping fat had caused its grill to flame up. Rossiter believed that premium Wagyu beef should be cooked in a cast iron skillet than not on a grill, but she was not about to give unsolicited cooking advice to her CEO. She was also astonished that Bezos seemed to care so much. Quote, it was definitely one of those, I can't believe this is actually happening moments in my life, she said. So Rossiter went back to her supplier who subcontracted the work to another ranch in Georgia that could produce heritage Aberdeen Angus beef burgers with 91% lean meat and only 9% fat. After repeated trips to taste test variations, Rossiter had a second single cow burger with easy to peel packaging ready to go by January 2017, and Bezos was satisfied. So, Paul, I feel like that a- anecdote represents, you know, not just Bezos' pe- peculiar taste but a kind of different style of innovation within Amazon. You know, they talk about being customer focused, working backwards from the customer, but in this case and in others in the book, it's really all about the very peculiar case of a billionaire who wants to find ways to make Amazon just a little bit different. That, of course, is our guest today, author Brad Stone, reading a passage from his new book, Amazon Unbound. Before we talk to Brad Stone, as always, let's go to our healthy headline of the week. Today's healthy headline segment. Why laughter therapy can be such powerful medicine for the trying times we're in. After a year of social isolation and lockdown, so many in our audience here on the Not Old Better Show are at risk of isolation and loneliness. Laughing is an excellent way to reduce stress in our lives and can help you to cope with and survive a stressful lifestyle. Laughter provides a full-scale workout for your muscles and unleashes a rush of stress-busting endorphins. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, whose pen name was Mark Twain, lauded as the greatest humorist the United States has ever produced, once said, Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. From the National Institutes of Health Research, Dr. C.Y.K. Williams and his team in the UK reviewed several studies on the subjects of how best to overcome the risks associated with isolation and loneliness using laughter. Laughter therapy has been around for a while, but a new review of the research by Dr. Williams indicates more effective use. Dr. Williams, what did you look at and what did you review in the way of research to investigate how to help some of these elderly who are lonely and isolated? Yeah, so we uh, wanted to look at, you know, in the midst of the first uh, national lockdown here in the UK, uh, we wanted to look at uh, what could be done for a, uh, a group of people who are very susceptible to loneliness. And given that we were all locking down, people weren't able to see their family and friends. Uh, we wanted to look at what studies were out there that um, publish interventions that can reduce loneliness and social isolation uh, in the elderly. Um, and in addition to this, we wanted to look at the ways in which with COVID, obviously you have the social distancing guidance and here in the UK, the shielding guidance for those who uh, have uh, sort of have pre-specified medical conditions um, that means that they're more susceptible to COVID. Um, and we wanted to apply these these rules to look at what interventions would be feasible um, with social distancing in place. 
Dr. Williams, I know that the research was primarily conducted pre-pandemic. So will it apply post-pandemic? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the studies that because of how early we, uh, you know, in the pandemic, we, we started looking at um, and conducting this review. There weren't any um, studies which had been done in sort of post-pandemic conditions. However, something that we you know, really wanted to, to look into was uh, what, uh, which sorts of studies could be feasible and uh, what sorts of modifications could be employed to the pre-existing studies of interventions um, to allow them to be applied in a post-pandemic world. Uh, and we found that in many cases, the, the effective in- interventions that we identified, we deemed feasible using video call software or telephone technology. Um, and we felt that these, in these uh, studies, the modifications weren't uh, large enough to sort of remove the, the evidence or you know, neglect the, the evidence uh, for, for the interventions that they studied. So Dr. Williams, what exactly is laughter therapy? Sure. So, so laughter therapy was, was one of the, the uh, what we grouped as psychological interventions uh, among these. The, this group also included things like uh, mindfulness and reminiscence therapy, where you look at uh, think about memories of, uh, of uh, loved ones. Um, laughter therapy, in particular, involved a combination of uh, laughter exercises, deep breathing exercises, singing songs, and um, sort of meditating with laughter. And it's felt that this can help to facilitate positive emotions in place of negative ones and really create a sense of togetherness among members of the group to improve sort of one's mood overall and decrease uh, decrease loneliness and isolation. So how exactly do you conduct laughter therapy while meditating? I suppose that's a that just strikes me as not exactly the same. <laughs> so the, the yeah, the, the, it's a combination of kind of breathing techniques and deep breathing and uh, the, the release you get from it in addition to structured kind of laughing without any uh, uh, laughing for no reason and so it's not like you need a, a stimulus such as a you know, comedian to, uh, to come out and tell, and tell jokes the idea behind this is that the um, the body doesn't really understand uh, or it doesn't really mind when uh, when laughter is real versus inverted commas um, fake and therefore it's this act of um, putting your body through the the series of kind of physical actions of laughing um, that can facilitate the sort of stimulate the the mind and uh, and for whatever reason it seemed to work in the study that we identified to reduce the loneliness. So laughter therapy can be conducted online through video chat, or how is that done? I think one of the advantages of the, you know, the this uh, virtual, um, the popularity of virtual technologies such as uh, all the video call um, and group meetings, is that you know, the, from a, an accessibility point of view, if you have access to um, uh, a laptop or and an internet connection. Um, then it's very easy actually to you know, get on to and benefit from some of these uh, therapies, which are often you know, can be low cost or, or, you know, or cost uh, nothing at all. Um, the one provisor of that, obviously, is that it is dependent on a, a laptop and internet connection, and uh, you know, not everybody has the ability or know how, especially you know, among the older 
generations to necessarily be able to uh, you know, set up their own laptop and dial into a, a Zoom, Zoom session. Um, and that's one of the thing, one additional thing that we highlighted in our review that uh, the there has to be quite um, careful consideration of the what what it means from an access point of view to make sure that people who are um, you know, most at risk of loneliness aren't actually the ones who are least able to access the uh, the interventions that uh, seem to work for them. So Dr. Williams, final question for you. I mean, laughter therapy has been around for a little while. What else did you look at and why? I mean, I think every, everyone enjoys laughing, don't they? Yes, of course. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, we, this is one of several studies, as I mentioned, that, uh, that we identified. We weren't specifically looking to uh, into laughter therapy, um, but it, it's something that you know, we, want, we wanted to look at what all kinds of therapies that, that could be effective, and laughter therapy was one of those um, that, that we identified as showing some, some, some signs of promise. Um, and I'm certainly hopeful that people can you know, go on and benefit from that and the other studies that we, uh, we highlighted in, in the review. Dr. Chris Williams has been our guest. We sure appreciate your time, Dr. Williams, and uh, have a great day and, and laugh and enjoy the feel-good factor that comes from laughter. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I said you Now our interview with Bloomberg finance writer Brad Stone, author of the new book, Amazon Unbound. Brad Stone, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. First of all, I just want to make sure you're doing well, family's well, everybody uh, practicing safe social distancing right now, and uh, we're, happy and vaccinated. And- we're, we're good. In fact, um, yesterday, the, tw- the 12-year-old twins were vaccinated. Hey, so San awesome. Francisco is starting to o- open that up to teenagers. That's good news. Well, my best to you and your family. Let's just jump in and talk about the book. Of course, uh, your wonderful book, Getting High Praise, Amazon Unbound. Let me just start with the title. Where does that come from? <laughs> That, it's a good question. Um, I, you know, I wrote a previous book about Amazon, The Everything Store, which was, you know, the, the early years, the biography of Bezos. And this book was really about, you know, the last 10 years, the trillion dollar company, the richest guy in the world. And when I thought about what had allowed, what was so interesting about this story, I mean, one is just the very visible transformation of Jeff Bezos in front of our very eyes. But another thing is, you know, big companies don't usually get even bigger. And, and you know, what happens is that there's an organizational gravity that, that you know, big bureaucracy, um, you know, it makes it difficult for them to grow, try new things. And yet Amazon had almost been immune or unbound from that, those laws of physics that govern corporate corporations. Um, it, had, it had gone, and my story is about a $100 billion company becoming a $1.6 trillion company. And, you know, and, and that, and so Unbound, um, and it pops up in a couple of employee quotes as well, you know, they, Jeff had created a machinery that allowed Amazon to be unbound from all of the challenging things, the dysfunction and the disruptive things that happen at big companies. Not to say it's not there, but he somehow kind of defied it. I love the pictures in the book. And again, the book is excellent, Amazon Unbound. And you talk about this transformation before our eyes. Visibly, Bezos has changed a lot since the founding of Amazon. So maybe tell us a little bit about some of these changes. There's this great picture in the book um, of Bezos from the Sun Valley, Idaho conference. And he's just looking buffed, you know, to Mm -hmm. say the least. So there have been lots of changes there. 
I mean, the physical transformation that you're talking about, this is the most remarkable one, right? I don't, mm-hmm, Paul, mm-hmm. I don't know how long you've been observing Silicon Valley from afar, but, you know, I remember when the guy wore pleated khakis and was kind of, <laughs> you know, had the crazy laugh and was a little bit of a nerd. And, you know, and here he is sort of larger than life action mm-hmm, hero figure mm-hmm. of the business world. But the main transformation, the maybe less visible one, is of someone who was completely focused on the business of Amazon into a a figure on the world stage who owns the Washington Post, who is fighting uh, very visibly with the Trump administration, who has a space company and is involved in a high-profile battle with Elon Musk, another famous business figure, uh, whose personal life is, has dramatically changed and, and who you know, finds it splashed on the pages of, of the tabloids and then goes to war with the National Enquirer, and then who ultimately steps aside from Amazon as CEO, the company that he loves and nourishes. So there are many dimensions to the transformation, but you know, the starting point of the book, Amazon Unbound, is a guy who's so focused on the business, he basically comes up with the idea of Alexa uh, solely to tie his cloud business to the consumer business. And then at the end, he's giving up the CEO chair, announcing a $10 billion climate philanthropy is the richest guy in the world, and it's building a luxury yacht uh, to go sail the high seas, uh, something I report for the first time in the book and something that was difficult to imagine 10 years ago, him being someone who enjoyed spending his time in that way. We have written previously about Amazon in the Everything Store, which was which was equally good in, in my opinion. So you, you know this territory. It seems like you had access to Bezos personally then, not so much now. And Amazon is known for its secrecy. Where where do you begin to start this process of writing this kind of next phase in the Amazon kind of you know saga? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no that that is the uh, the quandary. And and I'll I'll just say that um, I had more access to Bezos in the first book, but not a lot. He he talked to me at the beginning, and then he he decided he didn't. Well, he he said it was too early to tell the Amazon story, and and he ended up disliking that book, or at least in the moment he did. I don't know if you remember, but yeah, it's white. <laughs> I remember Mackenzie's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and McKenzie the one Scott, star. <laughs> yeah. 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 The one star review and Andy Jassy left me a one star review. And of course it was all gangbusters for the book um, and, and helped quite a bit. And so on this one, you know, I knew that at the very least I had a, a growing chorus of former employees who, you know, who, the brave ones will share what they saw at the revolution and um, and that there was a satisfying story there. But, you know, you also want a balanced story. So I went back to Amazon. And in fact, you know, I feel like they're maybe more amenable on some level to deal with journalists who they if they feel like they believe those those journalists will give them a fair shake. And they cooperated with me. You know, I interviewed at least a dozen employees, including Dave Clark, the new CEO of the Amazon business, and Jeff Wilkie, who just retired from that role, and uh, um, uh, Andy Jassy, who's taking over um, as CEO. You know, so, um, you know, Bezos doesn't want to reflect, he perhaps doesn't want to talk to me, but um, I, I got plenty of access and they helped mm-hmm. quite a bit. Let's talk a little bit about the the PR part of Bezos's world, because in the book, you talk about him being able to manipulate his adversaries into creating an incriminating paper trail during the early days of his extramarital affair with Lauren Sanchez. 
I wonder, does Bezos believe he's vulnerable? Does he just believe he's brave? Is he just cocky and doesn't care about what the PR outcomes might be? I remember the drone subject and the drones for Amazon delivery. You mentioned the $500 million super yacht. All of that's been PR fodder, yet doesn't really stick to Bezos in a way that hurts him, it seems. He really is seems to be immune from that stuff. It's remarkable. Um, now, that's not to say his image hasn't suffered, because I think that it has. Um, but um, and I do think he cares. Right. I mean, I think that like he must look at Elon and this magical halo of infallibility, even as Elon. So. Uh, undisciplined on Twitter, he, you know, he, Elon has converted his followers into fanboys almost, and Jeff doesn't, doesn't, isn't as effective as that. But, you know, I tell the story of the National Enquirer and Bezos's response and the kind of jujitsu move of, um, you know, wrapping himself up in the mantle of the post. And on the cover of Business Week, which excerpted my book, we had the, the headline, Jeff Wins. And that is what we see again and again. Bessemer, Alabama, the union vote, you know, the battle between uh, Amazon and Microsoft for Jedi, which is now being, you know, reevaluated by the courts. Jeff versus the National Enquirer. He he seems to come out on top. Um, now, Bezos versus Elon, that's a that's a chapter that may, may be still undergoing. And Elon appears to be winning that one, at least in the race for space. So um, he does. Yeah, he I don't know. I think he. He's he he thinks very cleverly and uniquely about the media. And and I'll, we'll go back to the McKenzie one star review. I mean, think about how creative that was back then when you had a book that they 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 didn't seem to like for whatever reason. And instead of a press release or an interview, they picked something very kind of clever and 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 uh, and 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 somewhat unique, you know, to go and have his wife at the time deliver the review you know, I felt that pain in the moment, even if it was helpful. Uh, and so he's just, you know, he's a, he's a fierce competitor. Um, and he always seems to come up. He's a tactician. I'd hate to play chess with him. And he does always seem to come up with a unique move. Well, let's talk for a second about Elon Musk. Do you think there's a rivalry between the two men? Because Elon just does things very differently, in particular with, when it comes to SpaceX. There's just not a, a similar uh, stature, perhaps, of, of, you know, we don't see Jeff Bezos in the same way that we, you know, we don't see Jeff Bezos maybe yet on Saturday Night Live, but Elon just does things very differently. And I wonder, do you think Blue Origin's falling behind? It, it is. It is. And and I get into this in, in the book, and, and I, I did a LinkedIn post on it, actually, um, last week. And, you know, there, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is, you know, the, the genetics that Jeff created the DNA that he created at Blue Origin. Back in 2000, you know, the early 2000s when he was starting the company, he had a bunch of assumptions, which seemed reasonable at the time that you could move slow, you could move step by step, you could really constrain the headcount, and you could, uh, and Jeff could run it himself, investing his winnings at Amazon as they grew. And then, and, and he actually literally said, the to- you know, be the tortoise, not the hare. And then what happened was Elon comes around later, uh, builds an, a rocket to go into orbit. Bezos is building suborbital rockets. He basically funds it with venture capital and then government contracts and grows it really quickly. So Bezos is constraining his company, moving slowly. Elon is ramping up quickly and getting the government to pay for his space dreams, pulling off all kinds of incredible public feats uh, and uh, successes. 
Um, and Bezos eventually, because he's a very competitive guy, says, okay, why am I spending a billion dollars a year? Um, you know, we should compete for these contracts too. Well, you know, Blue Origin was a small constrained company and suddenly he presses the gas and that seeds all sorts of dysfunction at the company. And now what we see is Elon and, and Jeff competing for gov government contracts, Elon winning most of them, uh, Bezos contesting them in court, and uh, Elon then retorting snidely on Twitter. And it's tremendously entertaining to watch. Uh, but yeah, for a competitive guy, I gotta believe that it really, uh, it really you know, hits Bezos, uh, that he, uh, he has succeeded so conspicuously in all other areas of his life. And the thing that he cares most about, he's always said, this is really his dream, space travel, you know, he's built the second, uh, the sec even the second or third most exciting <laughs> space right, company. Right. We're with Brad Stone. Brad Stone is the author of the new book, Amazon Unbound. And Brad Stone has been able to get inside the Jeff Bezos and Amazon bubble. In the book, Brad Stone, there's this just remarkable exchange between Jay Carney, uh, public affairs, I think, or perhaps uh, public relations, um, former Obama administration official. But there's this great exchange between Jay Carney and Bezos. It took place in 2015. And it's really about Bezos being concerned about Trump being a possible U.S. president. The subject line of the email is Trump trash talk. I have to read that kind of slow. <laughs> In there, Bezos admits to being this inexperienced trash talker, but he's willing to learn. <laughs> I like right. that. He's willing to learn. How, how did Bezos's Washington Post ownership impact his relationship with Trump and just this ongoing trash talk? Yeah. So we're back now here in late 2015. This is in the first part of my book. And um, and the, the Post is covering Trump's campaign for president very aggressively. And, and Trump, who hates to be criticized, obviously, a tremendously thin skin, is lashing out at the Post and Bezos and implying that Amazon owns the Post, which it does not, and implying that the Post is, uh, uh, you know, kind of a lobbying arm of Amazon, which it's not, and trying to protect its tax advantages. And Bezos uh, emails Jay Carney and says he wants to re return fire. And Carney, who's pretty savvy in these matters, says, um, you know, why, you're just going to add more fuel to the fire. And Bezos, you know, either because he feels a sense of wanting to defend the post or perhaps uh, indulging a little bit in the, uh, you know, in some vanity or feeling like, you know, the stage is now littered with people who are taking on this maniac, um, and he 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 overrides Carney. He says he wants to re return fire, and he, and then he tweets this very memorable "Send Donald to Space" uh, tweet. And the next four years, not as a result, might have happened anyway. Probably would have, but Trump just you know subjects Bezos and Amazon and the Post to all, to all sorts of withering invective. Um, blows up the Jedi contract, you know, allegedly, uh, but I think there's probably reasons to believe that was true, um, attacks Amazon's relationship at the post office, and really, fundamentally, because uh, Amazon, uh, well, because Jeff owns the post, and the post is very critical of its administration, and, and probably on some level, because, you know, he's skeptical of anyone who's wealthier than he is. And yeah, so the post bring, it, it's funny, people skeptically um, will speculate that 
Bezos bought the Washington Post for political influence. And you have to say that if that was the reason, boy, did it backfire. Because during the Trump years, uh, he was basically at war with the most powerful person in the world. The Post has been successful, too. The revival has really uh, taken hold and and, uh, become very real. How much has Bezos had to do with this success? A lot, a lot. And not in in the obvious ways. You know, Paul, a lot of people think, well, Jeff Bezos, billion, billion and billion, billions of, of dollars in his fortune, he opened up the pocketbooks and the Post turned it around. And so what he did was, you know, he allowed the Post to make the really uncomfortable changes. And that was probably laying people off in the analog sales division, adding people in the digital sales division, you know, investing in the technology technologies like their ARC publishing platform that they sell to other papers, allowing the newsroom to hire strategically first, you know, on the national and international desks, and then, you know, later on the business desk and de-emphasizing the local edition. So it was this strategy that the Times probably had pioneered or was in the middle of undergoing that the Post, you know, probably knew was a smart idea, but they, under the grams, they couldn't undergo the temporary pain to get there. And, uh, and that was really fundamental to the turnaround, not just an open pocketbook. The book, again, Amazon Unbound. Brad Stone's been our guest, but Brad Stone, thank you so much for your time. What a pleasure it's been to talk with you and congrats on the book, getting great reviews and lots of high praise. Thank you, Paul. My thanks to Brad Stone, author of the new book, Amazon Unbound. Do shop smart online. And one more fact, as you probably know, Jeff Bezos has stepped down as CEO of Amazon. Bezos left in his prime. It's a joke. (laughs) Remember, laughter is important. You can find out more on our website, notold-better.com. Thanks for joining us this morning. And until next time, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. 